Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Great to be with you tonight. Um, opening up Deuteronomy chapter 9. So have that in front of you. I'm going to, re- I'm going to um, pray for us now as we listen to God and uh, hear from his word in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, you are the God of enormous kindness and mercy and grace. Uh, we, we want to see that tonight, Lord. Help us as we uh, listen to your word, as you speak to us personally, as you speak to us as a church. Uh, Lord, please now by your spirit, open our hearts, our minds, to see the great things that you have in store for us. Uh, Lord, bring us to see how great Jesus is, maybe for the first time, but maybe again. Uh, we, Lord, we long to respond in a way that pleases you. Uh, Lord, lift our hearts, uh, enlarge our vision, uh, help us to live lives that are, are obedient to you as we listen to you tonight. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question. What do you reckon is the most dangerous sin of all? What's the worst sin of all? Well, let me put it slightly differently. Uh, what is the sin that is behind every other sin, do you think? And I'll give you the answer that Augustine, hundreds of years ago, said. He said, the, the mother of all sins is pride. The mother of all sins is pride. Pride, he said, is a cosmic crime. Uh, it has the dubious distinction of standing alone atop the list of the seven deadly sins because it is, in essence, the source of all sin. Pride. C.S. Lewis, uh, he said, it's the original sin of Lucifer. Uh, it's an instrument strung, but preferring to play itself because it thinks it knows the tune better than the musician. Such is the nature of pride. Uh, so the idea is that whatever you're struggling with, think about it. Uh, the issue is actually pride. If you strip it back a little bit further, envy, greed, pornography, lust, anger. It's actually pride that's driving you underneath all of those things. Uh, the one sin is pride. Pride is a toxic sin. Uh, it'll stop you doing lots of good things. Uh, I was thinking about this uh, as I was reflecting on Friday at Grow. Uh, we mentioned Reach Australia and Reach Australia did a consult in our church earlier this year. And part of that consult was uh, me being assessed as lead pastor, me getting some feedback, uh, me actually putting it out to others. How am I going? Uh, they even asked some questions uh, from my wife, which terrified me. Um, and I thought to myself, as I think about the answers to these questions, and um, why am I so worried about this? I think it's actually pride. Uh, what is it that stops me listening to that well? It's pride. And there's some really dire warnings in the Bible on pride. If, you, if you've noticed this, Proverbs 16.5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Uh, but be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Or James 4.6, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. It's, it's so significant. It is so bad uh, in God's eyes. It'll actually stop you from becoming a Christian. It'll actually stop you from returning to Jesus or returning to church. Uh, if you're married, it will destroy your marriage. 
It will end friendships and relationships because what do friendships and relationships rely on? They rely on forgiveness. And you'll be so proud you won't be able to say sorry. or You won't be able to forgive. It actually will stop you from serving other people. It stops you from learning and listening because you're too proud uh, to admit you don't know and, and you need to learn from others. It's terrible. It, it stops you from being thankful. It leads you down a path of being bitter and resentful. Here's another one. It will stop you from trying too hard because you don't want to fail. But worst of all, it, it stops you from being more like Jesus. It actually works against the Spirit of God. What is the fruit of pride? It's actually boasting. Either out loud in your, in your speech or in the quiet recesses of your mind, what you're thinking, what you're saying to yourself. Here's what I reckon goes on in your head when, you're, when, we're, when we're proud. We keep saying, I'm better than you. It's pretty simple. <laughs> and I need you to know that I'm better than you. I'm wealthier than you. I'm smarter than you. I have a better job than you. I'm a, I have a better house than you. I have a, a better husband or wife than you. Pride is why we talk more and listen less. It's why we talk at each other rather than to one another. You know, the most serious of all is pride says, pride speaks over God. Pride sits in judgment of God's word. Pride says, I don't need you, God. Have a look at this photo. This is a, a photo of Rene Rifkin. Uh, it's, it's about 15 to 20 years old now. Um, he was a very well-known Australian stockbroker, very flamboyant, incredibly wealthy, uh, known to you know, enjoy the fruits of all his, his wealth. Uh, but about 20 years ago, he had a tumour in his head and he headed off to surgery. And this is what he said. He said, I wonder whether as an atheist Jew, which is an interesting combination, isn't it? But that's, that's who he was. I wonder whether as an atheist Jew, I will end up praying for God's help for this operation. And he came through the operation and this is what he said. He said, I'm, I'm so glad I didn't pray. I don't want to be beholden to anyone. That's pride, right? That is pride. Uh, it's, it's a tragic story. In 2005, he suicided. Uh, there is a man who had it all, but doesn't want to be beholden to anyone, not even the one who loved him deeply. Well, tonight we're in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Have it open in front of you. We're in our series, How to Love God. And here's the warning. God wants to warn his people from a proud heart, a really dangerous place to be, a really dangerous place for us to be as well. He warns us of the proud heart. Now, how do you not go there? How do you not have the proud heart? Well, here's, here's the first thing. Make a humble assessment of yourself. Make a humble assessment of yourself. Uh, that's what Israel is going to get in, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, that's what they need as they head into the promised land. Remember, uh, we're, we're on the edge of the promised land with Moses speaking to them from God. Uh, out, of their, out of God's great grace and mercy, they will enter that land. But what's the danger? What, what does God fear for them? Have a look at verse 4. It's an attitude of pride. The Lord has brought me... You, here's what you'll end up saying. This is the fear from God. 
The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. There's um, classic human heart without God changing it, isn't it? All the good gifts that God's given me, they've actually come from my hand. I'm not thankful. I'm here because of my righteousness. Why has God favoured me? Why am I a Christian? Well, I'm just that little bit better than someone else. That's the attitude that God fears. But there's three reasons Moses gives them why you mustn't go there, Israel. Have a look in verse 5. There's, there's three reasons why you, it is not because of your righteousness. So chapter 9, verse 5 says, It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land. But it's on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you. So it's actually because God is judging the nations that you're going to enter into the land. There's the first reason. Second reason is God is going to keep his promise. Look at the end of verse 5. Um, to accomplish what he swore to, to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God loves to keep his promise. God is, God is holy and perfect. He loves to keep his word and he's keeping his word. He promised the promised land and he's going to give it to them. But the third reason in verse 6 is you're not righteous. You're simply not righteous. In fact, what is the word that keeps getting used in chapter 9? You are the stiff-necked people. You are the people uh, who refuse God. You are a stiff-necked people. In fact, uh, let's go through and understand where you're at, Israel, is what Moses is saying. It's a humbling moment for Israel to realise you're not righteous. Here's the brute reality. Uh, it's always humbling, isn't it, when someone sits down with you and says, actually, this is what I see. Here's my feedback to you. Uh, you're, you're actually not as good as you think you are. You're not righteous. I think that's what's happening here. There's a number of things that happen in life that make us recalibrate, isn't it? Uh, exams are one of those, aren't they? Uh, you think you're doing well. The exam shows you up. You realise I haven't done, I haven't studied as hard as I should have. I don't know my material as well as I should. A good exam picks that up. Uh, what about reports? Do you remember your report when you went through school? Uh, think you're going well, but here's what your teacher is saying to you. You've tried to convince your parents that you actually are achieving, and then your teacher says, "My my reports always said uh, Michael is improving. Some of them are like." He's greatly improving. And I never knew quite how to take it. How bad was I? <laughs> I'm improving. How much more improving do I need to do? Uh, it's just that, that snapshot. Here's where you're at. And here's Israel's report card. Verse 6. You're a stiff-necked people. Verse 7. You arouse the anger of the Lord your God. Again in verse 7. You've been rebellious against the Lord. And then on to verse 8, you arouse the Lord's anger so that he was angry enough to destroy you. In fact, Moses says, let me give you the examples. It's always interesting when someone gives you feedback, isn't it? When they give you examples, that stings, that hurts. It's not just a general comment. It's like here and here and here. That's what verse 22 is doing. You also made the Lord angry at, at Taborah, at Massah, at Kibroth, Hadadphar, and at Kadesh Barnea, you rebelled. Do you remember those moments in your history? And their rebellion is so bad that God wants to distance himself 
from his people. That is remarkable. Look at verse 12. It's up on the screen for you. God says to Moses, go down from here at once because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made an idol for themselves. Did you notice the language? Uh, God says to Moses, go down there because they've made the idol, the golden calf, because your people, Moses, whom you brought out of Egypt, what an extraordinary thing for God to say. Now They're actually God's people. God has rescued them, but God is distancing himself He's so offended by their rebelliousness. There is sin in their midst. There is the golden calf sitting right there in their midst that he has to distance himself. He cannot bear it. Look at verse 13. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people. They are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I might destroy them and blot their name from under heaven. There is a low point, yeah? In Deuteronomy, there is a low point in the Bible. In fact, the, new, the, the Bible could have finished here. Is this the end of Israel? The Bible could have been a, a much shorter book, yeah? Uh, Moses is so devastated at this point. It has reached such a low point. Did you notice he drops the Ten Commandments on the ground or does he throw them on the ground? Depending on your translation. Super low point. But it's actually out of this low that God brings something supremely good. And isn't that the character of God? Isn't that the nature of how God does things? Isn't that how he builds relationship with us and wins us? Isn't that what happened when you first become a Christian? It's the acknowledgement of sin. I'm not righteous. Uh, I am a sinner. I do need to be forgiven. I need to confess it before you. And then you come and and you're forgiven and you drink deeply from God's mercy and grace, and you have refreshment and new life, God brings great things out of that brute honesty with sin. It's actually the character of the Christian life, isn't it? When you realise I'm saved by grace, I'm no more special than anyone else, Uh, there by, by the grace of God go I, when I look at other people. I'm not good, God is good. And you don't need to pretend anymore. You don't need to cover up sin. You don't need to cover up your faults or flaws. Actually, Christ has died for them all. There's a security in that. It actually means you can be honest with yourself and realize your sin. Some people think that realizing your sin, coming to terms with sin, is is just too negative. Uh, A friend of mine said that every time... I go to church, I'm reminded of my sin. I remember when I was a younger Christian speaking to an old, an old, much older man and and being convicted and challenged and feeling guilty about something in my life. Coming to him thinking that he will be empathetic, he said, isn't that wonderful? God has made you realize that you're a sinner and that you need to be forgiven. That is a great thing. Israel needs to know that they are not righteous. But did you notice in chapter, over in chapter 10, if you've been reading, reading ahead, have a look in chapter 10, verse 10, something remarkable happens. Uh, listen to these words. Now I stayed on the mountain, this is Moses speaking, 40 days and 40 nights, 
chapter 10, verse 10. As I did the first time, and the Lord listened to me at this time also. It was not his will to destroy you, Israel. Verse 11, go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way, so they may enter and possess the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. That's incredible. We've reached the low point of, of, the, of Israel's life, and now in, in chapter 10, Moses is told by God, actually tell them they're going to enter the land, the promised land. I'm going to give it to them. God changes his mind, doesn't he? Who changes? What changes? It's actually Moses, isn't it? Did you notice in the chapter, it is actually Moses who pleads with God on their behalf. It's actually Moses who God listens to. Moses who is the mediator between an angry God and a rebellious people. It's actually Moses who intercedes for the whole nation. Moses is the reconciler between Israel and their God. I don't know whether you've had anything to do with family court. I really hope that you haven't. Uh, family court and mediation is an incredibly painful thing to deal with. If you've ever helped someone through that or been through it yourself. It's incredibly stressful to see a family at war with one another. A family on the brink of separation and divorce who's trying to work out a, a settlement. Uh, it feels like there's nothing that strikes at the core of God's good design for family than that separation that uh, where you know, kids and assets are all divided. And uh, what do the courts do? Before you, apparently before you go to court uh, and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and before there's major bloodshed on the floor, they encourage you to go and speak to a mediator, uh, have mediation. Uh, they've actually got uh, organisations that are set up for this. They've built buildings to facilitate this where two different pa- two, the two parties with their kids can come in two separate entrances and come together in a room in the middle with a mediator to work this out. That over weeks and months, can we come to an agreement? Can we come to a settlement? Moses is that mediator between God and his people. And I want to press into what kind of mediator he is. Look at, look at it with me. In verse 19, Moses prays to God and God listens to him. And you notice uh, in verse 14, when God said, I want to destroy you, I want to blot your name out, Israel, as a nation... He says, but I want to start again with you, Moses. I'll make you, Moses, into a strong nation. So actually, Moses is saying, no, no, I want the nation. I'm praying for the nation to come with you, God, into the promised land. Moses is actually doing a very self-sacrificial thing, not just thinking of himself, but thinking of the nation. He prays, he fasts. Uh, It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? For 40 days and 40 nights. And you notice in verse 21, he deals very decisively with the problem that's right in their midst, with sin. He destroys the golden calf in the fire. Did you notice that? And you notice how it's described to us? This idol that carries so much power and love for God's people, that's so offensive to God. What does Moses do? He destroys it in the fire. He crushes it. He grinds it down to powder. He puts it in the stream that's flowing away from the mountain, away from God. What an awesome thing to do. 
And listen to Moses' prayer in verse 26. What do you hear in this prayer? Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people. Your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. But they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Do you see Moses' concern? It's for God's glory, isn't it? It's first and foremost for God's fame. How will this look? How will this reflect on you, God, and your name, your glory? It's you, God, who's promised. Please keep your promise. And notice what he says. Please overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Please overlook their sin. Uh, Have you ever experienced uh, what it's like to overlook someone's offence? Uh, It depends on which side of the fence you're on, isn't it? Uh, We want others to overlook our sins, yeah? Our offences. But it's actually really, it can be really costly to overlook the sins of others. We need to do it, we need to forgive. But how hard is it when someone's deeply offended you and you need to overlook that offence? You need to forgive that offence. It's costly. And Moses, the great leader he is, is still flawed. He's, he's, he doesn't even enter the promised land. Who is the one who truly intercedes? Who is the one who deals with sin? It's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the one who, at the cross, reconciles us completely with God. Who, Jesus is the one who directs the anger of God towards himself so that we might never experience the anger of God. He absorbs God's anger for our sin so we might be saved. Who is the one who prays on our behalf to the Father? I have died for this one. I have saved this one. Her sin is paid for. His sin is paid for. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one true mediator between us and God Uh, he's the only reason we're in relationship with God he's how God can overlook our sin he's the only reason that Israel is saved and he's the only reason that we are saved have a look at this verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2 it's on the screen for you Paul says there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. There it is. One God, one mediator between God and mankind, Jesus, the ransom for all people. See, Moses, Moses was a saviour figure. He was an interceder. Uh, he was a type of mediator. But it's like all, all of the bigwigs, if you like, of the Old Testament are flawed, are broken are a type, are a picture, are a shadow of the reality that we see in Jesus. Who is it that will actually deal with sin? Who is it that will actually plead effectively with the Father? 
It's Jesus. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. So big chunk over Hebrews chapter 7, New Testament, towards the end of your Bibles. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, sorry, Hebrews as a book is awesome to understand how does Jesus fulfill uh, the Old Testament. Hebrews 7 verse 23 helps us here. If you think about Moses as a priest uh, reconciling Israel with God, here is the real priest. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office. They died, another one came. Verse 24, but, Jesus, but because Jesus lives forever, because of his resurrection... He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. See, Jesus always speaks to the Father on our behalf because he is alive to, to this day. Do you realise how much God has showered you with his love and kindness because of Jesus? It's only because of the kindness and mercy of God in Jesus. It's Jesus who says to the Father, for you, if you've trusted in him, I died for her, I died for him. Her sins are paid for, his sins are paid for. And you see also how Israel is saved. Israel is saved by the kindness and mercy of God, first through the, the mediator of Moses, but ultimately through the mediator, the perfect one in Jesus it's Jesus who says to the Father, Israel is mine. I died for her. I paid for her sins at the cross. A little bit tricky to get your head around, isn't it? Because Israel were hundreds of years before Jesus' death on the cross. How does that work? But it's that idea that Jesus' death is the once for all sacrifice for sins. The sins of the past, the sins of the present. Thankfully, the sins of the future. Uh, let me see if this helps you uh, as we think about this idea. Uh, let me tell you about the supermarket with my kids. And this is, this is an old story because the kid, my kids are teenagers now and they don't want to come to the supermarket with me. But when kids are younger, uh, they come along the supermarket with you, you pile up the trolley with all your, your stuff. It's always a lot more expensive when you go with kids um, because they want to throw extra stuff in. Uh, there's, a, there's a cost too because you need to give them a treat. And so in the trolley is sitting three treats, one for each, each girl. And as you head to the checkout, uh, what's happened? One girl has already eaten her treat completely. Uh, so it's an empty packet. Uh, the other girl is in the queue with me as we're going into the conveyor belt and is eating the, the treat as we're, as we're there. And the third treat sits in the trolley, the way it's meant to be. I won't, I won't reveal who it is. <laughs> and as I, here it is. As I pay for the groceries, as I pay for the treats, I'm paying for all three. Yeah? The, the, the treat that's already been eaten, the treat that's being consumed as we head through the checkout, the treat that's yet to be consumed. Um, that's meant to help you with Jesus, right? <laughs> Christ died for sins, one payment for all. There is no other payment. Uh, past, present, future. Israel is saved by grace, by the death of Jesus. 
They're not saved by the works of the law or any other way. And you and I are saved by the grace found in the death of Jesus. We're not saved by the works or the law. Our sins are paid for, past, present and future. Now tonight we're going to to, um, think into Jesus more and and reflect on the goodness of knowing Jesus as our mediator, uh, as our interceder, as we we celebrate communion. Uh, But before we get there, uh, here's two things I I want to talk to you about as we think about how to respond tonight. I want you to think uh, and sit with the kindness and mercy of God, the grace of God, that we don't deserve it, and yet God's given it to us in Christ. I want you to sit with that. I want you to think on that. And I want to put to you that when you realise that, when you realise how generous God has been to you, that changes, can I put it this way, your mood towards God, your attitude towards God, how you live for God. And I reckon this is the case... uh, when people are generous towards us, it changes our attitude towards them. I don't know whether you've noticed this. Um, recently, I was, uh, had to purchase some oil for an oil tank, which is on the side of our house, which is for an old oil heater from the 1960s. Um, there's one guy in Camden who comes down uh, once every couple of weeks to refill the oil tanks of, the, of Yellowara. Ours went down to zero about three weeks ago, just before that cold snap. Or sorry, just after, about, about 24 hours after. Um, I rang him up and he tells me his price. I'm like, that is extraordinarily expensive. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit cranky that I have to pay so much. There's no one else. He's got the monopoly. Anyway, he, he comes out. Uh, he, he puts the bowser up. He puts the nozzle up to the, uh, the tank. At the, at the roadside is the, is the, the truck. He's offside is at the truck. I say to him, I just want, he tells me the price. He tells me your tank is 460 litres. So it's going to cost you $1,200. Um, he says that my minimum is 250 litres. I said, I'm just going to go for the minimum. Can you just give me 250 litres? That'll be great. So he's filling it up and we're having a chat. Uh, and his offsider who has one job needs to tell him when it gets to the 250 litres, right? So we're chatting away. Ironically, we were talking about the generosity of God. He was talking about how he thinks God will forgive him. Anyway, um, finally he realises and he chats, he goes down to his mate and says, oh, what are we on? And his mate says, 394. (laughs) Um, So I got a massive bonus. And I thought, gee, I hope he uh, doesn't charge me. (laughs) And he didn't charge me. He was incredibly generous. Uh, he said, that's okay, it was my mistake. He wasn't narky about it. It changed my whole attitude. I should have been generous to him from the start because I'm a Christian. That's the nature of generosity, isn't it? It changes our response. I wanted to do good to him. I wanted to be generous towards him. And I think that's the case for God, isn't it? God has been incredibly generous to us. Uh, now we are to live lives that please him, that honour him from the heart because of what he's done for us it's it's not until you realize that the god who is perfect holy righteous that owes us nothing and we have de- deeply offended him it's not until you realize that that you realize how awesome it is that he's forgiven you how incredibly kind he's been towards you i wonder whether you appreciate that as you think about jesus tonight as you think he is the one 
who stood in for you, who died for you, does that change the way you love and obey and want to live for him? Listen, listen to what God says through Moses to his people in chapter 10, verse 12. Now that you have seen the mercy of God, listen, listen to this. Chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. You've been saved, you've been loved much, now live this way. It's very similar to the, what the Apostle Paul says to us in Ephesians chapter 2. See, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by works, so no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Go and do those good works, because God has showered his grace and mercy upon you. And let me say one other thing. When you realise the enormous kindness of God that is showered upon you, it has to make you more humble, doesn't it? Let me... Um, let me ask you these questions. Are you humble as you reflect on what God's done for you? Let me ask you these questions and then we'll pray together. Are you teachable? Are you a teachable person? Are you willing to listen to others? Do you welcome feedback? Do you repent quickly? Do you forgive willingly? Do you look down on other people or do you say, there by the grace of God go I? Do you welcome others to church because actually church is a place where no one deserves to be here? Do you see the problem in your relationships as other people's fault? Are you considerate of others or pushy and demanding? Are you able to serve others with joy? Are you able to be served? Are you aware of the grace, the massive grace of God in your life? Do you disagree with others graciously? Do you tell stories where you are often the hero or the victim? Can you fail publicly? Can you say, I don't know or I don't understand? I need help. Do you do your best or do you put the brakes on because you don't want to fail? Can you do good works without others knowing? Can you celebrate other people's gifts that are different to yours? And can you celebrate other people's wins? Why don't we pray together? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful tonight for the reminder of your grace and mercy that we see on display. First in the people of, uh, towards the people of Deuteronomy, Israel. Father, it's so clear that despite their stubbornness, their stiff necks, their rebellion, uh, you are a God of grace and mercy. You listened to Moses who interceded for them. Uh, Lord, we see it even more brightly in the person of Jesus who died for us, uh, who's risen again, who continues to intercede for us because he's paid for our sin. Father, thanks for your kindness and mercy. 
Lord, please continue to remind us of these. Help us now as we reflect on these things as we celebrate communion together. Our Lord, fill us with joy and uh, a willingness with all our heart to love and serve you uh, with our lives. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.